Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Fancy Scientist, a podcast. This week, I have been so busy working on my book. For over a year now, I've been writing this book as a guide to careers in wildlife biology. And today, I'm going to talk about what inspired me to write this book, which was figuring out that I made a lot of mistakes along the way and some bumps I've had along the road with the book, which is why I am scrambling now to finish it and why I've been so busy working on it this week and what the book is about as well. I think a lot of you will find it extremely useful if you're interested in this field I've been in this career now for a long time, almost two decades, and to my knowledge, there is no book that goes over this career the way that I will. And it's all evolving and changing so fast. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. At the end, I have an update to my previous podcast on sunscreen and the impacts of sunscreen on coral reefs, a scientist reached out to me and explained to me that it is not so straightforward. So I'm going to give you that update with some additional information about coral reefs and sunscreen and really a deeper understanding of what is going on. Really, it might be other factors, not just the sunscreen that is driving the bans in Hawaii and other places around the world. You will learn that conservation is, yes, about science, but heavily, heavily impacted by politics and the economy and human behavior. Okay, so let's get started today. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Okay, let me think back. How did I get started writing this book? Well, I decided to take my blogging more seriously, and I joined the North Carolina Bloggers Network. And there was this meetup event where I met other bloggers, and I just started to get more inspired and excited about blogging. So I started blogging more consistently, and I created my own blog. Before this, I was blogging with a group of other scientists, And as I started to make these blog posts, I wrote about a bunch of different things, including the research that I study. I was uh, intermixing nature and fashion and animals and fashion by identifying big cat spots and things like that. So I was trying to have a lot of fun with this blog. But I decided one day to write an advice post, and it was kind of reflecting about my experiences in graduate school and in this field and thinking back about what my expectations of this career were to the reality of it. And at the time, I was also on the job market. I was 
a little bit frustrated, actually a lot of bit frustrated because it was a lot more difficult for me to find a job than I thought it would be. So I don't remember exactly what inspired me to write this blog post, but I did. And I actually originally wrote it for my shared blog post. And then I started taking blogging more seriously. And I reframed it to be seven beginner's tips for a wildlife biology career. And as I went on blogging, I was really excited about all my new blog posts. And I started to learn more about blogging. I got Google Analytics and started to really dive deep into my blog and figure out what was going on. I also formed this bloggers meetup group here in North Carolina, and they were teaching me so much. And I learned about search engine optimization. And this is basically making your blog post to be able to be found by Google. So there's different things that you can do that make it more likely to rank well on Google. And compared to all my other blog posts, this blog post was getting way more hits and so much so that it actually made the first page of Google, I believe, when you search wildlife biology. And it's I think it's now down to the second page. But it was a really popular post. And I was also starting to get a lot of emails about it. I was getting a lot of questions, follow-up questions, and specifically a lot of advice on what people should do. And I've realized that I made mistakes in my career and other people are continuing to make the same mistakes. So I started blogging more about this and then I got the idea that I should just write an ebook as a guide to careers in wildlife biology. And I was talking to Chris Cloney of the Grad Bloggers podcast. If you are thinking about starting a blog or perhaps going into science communication, especially if you're changing careers, going away from research and thinking about starting a side hustle or a full hustle, his podcast is really great to listen to. And he was like, why not just write a whole book about it? Because books are more prestigious. It's just, you know, more official and I got to thinking about it. I guess, I don't know. I never thought I could write a book. Like, I didn't think I could write a book. Like, I don't know. It just didn't seem like an option out there. And at the same time, I was listening to another podcast, Smart Passive Income. I always thought with books that you had to get a publisher, but you can self-publish. And I knew people self-publish, but I didn't think that it like really went anywhere. And through listening to Smart Passive Income, the host of this podcast, he's a successful online entrepreneur. He's a millionaire. And he was just releasing a book. He had the option of either publishing with a publisher or doing the self-publishing route. And he did a podcast over all of the pros and cons of doing both. And he went self-publishing route both times with his book because it was just more pros with it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like amazing. I should just write a book. So I decided to do that. Although it seemed extremely ambitious, I figured if I could write a dissertation, I could write a book. So last year, I started writing all my thoughts down about my path through this career in wildlife biology, my mistakes, my lessons learned, and my advice that I would give to myself and therefore you if I were to do it all over again. 
That's how I came about writing this book. But the thing inside me, the fire inside me, that really motivated me to write this book is, quite honestly, I was shocked at how difficult it was to get a job after my PhD. When I went through graduate school, I never knew what I finally wanted to be in my career. I would always say I wanted a career that had a blend of research and outreach. Those are my two favorite things. I didn't really love teaching, and I also didn't like that with professor jobs, you not only had to teach, but you had to be a really great researcher. You had to obtain million-dollar grants, quite literally, if you're at a research one institution or at least those in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I, I do actually like each of those things, but doing them all together is really challenging, really intense. So I always felt like if I were to be really good at my research, then my teaching would suffer and the students would suffer. So I didn't like that. And if I were to be a teacher, then I couldn't do research as well. And I liked research a whole lot more than I liked teaching. So academia was never the route for me. I never knew exactly where I was going to end up. I knew I wanted a conservation-oriented career, but if that were in the government, the federal government, the state government, working for a nonprofit, even a consulting agency, that's really where I saw myself. I said this over and over and over again in my graduate career, and I always got the impression that academia was really competitive. That was clear. But I never got the impression no one told me how competitive these other jobs were. When I went through graduate school, all of my choices were made pretty much based on the fact that once you get your PhD, it basically demonstrates that you are a problem solver, a researcher, and you can apply for a variety of jobs as long as you can convince the employer that your skills transfer over to those areas. When I was younger, I studied how to write cover letters. When I was applying for internships after I graduated from college, the main job website was monster.com. I remember searching the internet, scouring it for advice on cover letters and resumes. So I was pretty good at writing powerful cover letters and I knew how to translate my skills over. I, I was also told to apply for jobs where I didn't meet all of the requirements, that uh, job advertisements were a wish list, and that it was extremely rare that they would find somebody who met all of those requirements. So frequently I was applying for jobs where I met approximately 70% of their requirements. Also, women tend to undersell themselves. Men will apply for jobs where they don't meet all the requirements, whereas women typically won't. So, so somebody told me that information and I took it to heart. But once I graduated with my PhD, I really had two rounds of job applications. My first round immediately after graduating, and then my second round after I moved here to Raleigh, North Carolina, and my second postdoc. And in both situations, I was, like I said, pretty shocked at how difficult it was to land a job. What I found was that I really wasn't competitive for jobs, definitely not where I met the 70% of the requirements, 
But even jobs where I'm at 100% of the requirements, it was still high competition. Before I chose my research project for my PhD, I was told over and over again I wouldn't be pigeonholed because that was something I was extremely worried about. And it ended up being true that people saw me either as a geneticist, which is part of which I, what I got my PhD in, or an elephant biologist. And this wasn't just my advisor or my committee. I had talked to people at conferences. I went to different workshops. We had seminar speakers visiting from all different organizations, mostly academia, but definitely government organizations. So I was getting my information from a lot of different people. And what I found is that it didn't match up once I graduated. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think that the field is evolving so fast. It's different than it was. Even now it's different from when I started my PhD, but it was definitely different from when my advisor started her PhD. And certainly from my committee members who had been in academia for decades, So I think that is changing so fast, and I think it is increasingly becoming competitive because the market is just saturated with PhDs, masters, bachelors, and wildlife biology. I've heard this from all different levels. Now, these conversations have been happening on Twitter, but I have found they haven't really been happening in real life, or at least in In universities, I work with undergraduate students, and the advice that I was giving them didn't really match up with the advice that they were given. Not that the advice that they are given was wrong, but it just didn't capture the essence of what is going on right now in the job market. And I really feel that this is like a dirty little secret that... Nobody wants you to know, and this makes sense from the professor's point. They don't want to tell you how competitive it is because then it might seem like they're discouraging you from going into this field, and they need graduate students to help them conduct their research. And it's also an amazing field. It's super fun. It's super important. You get to do really amazing experiences that you don't get to do in other fields, But there are a lot of things to consider. And I think that the expectations of becoming a research scientist, a wildlife biologist, are totally different from the realities of it. So my book is really all about clarifying these different aspects of what's going on. And I am going to be the truth teller out there. Now, I definitely am not going to discourage you from entering this field. I am going to give you the tools that you need to make sure you are successful and you are competitive and you land a permanent job. That is my ultimate goal for you reading this book. I want you to come out after reading this book knowing exactly what you're getting into. Wildlife biology is such a nebulous process, or at least it was for me. I still feel like it is for a lot of students too, especially those who maybe aren't in college yet or in this career. 
you don't really know how to get into it. And I kind of stumbled into it. I explain in my book the whole entire history of how I became a wildlife biologist. But my family owned a jewelry store. My dad's a business owner. Both of my parents never went to college. And I didn't have any idea what I was doing in college. In high school, my guidance counselors didn't present really any career options to me besides kind of the obvious ones like teacher, lawyer, doctor, veterinarian. And people were always like, oh, you love animals. You should become a veterinarian. But I don't know. I just didn't I wasn't interested in the medical side of things. So that just didn't seem right for me. So I totally stumbled into this career and I learned along the way by asking people for their advice. And you should do that too. It's definitely great. You should definitely do that. But most people make the mistake of only following this advice and really focusing on educational requirements. This was what I did. And I am not telling you not to listen to those people. You definitely should. But In order to be successful in this career, you need to have a better understanding of where you want to end up in this career. I belong to this wildlife sciences career network Facebook group, and so many people post this sort of generic question, like, I want to be a wildlife biologist. What courses should I take or what type of training should I get? And My answer is always the same. What do you ultimately want to do? Because one, there is many different types of wildlife biologists and the training and courses and educational requirements you need will vary according to not only what type of scientist you want to be, but what place you end up working at. And then two, a lot of people think that we are out in the field looking at animals every day and I'm sure there are positions out there like that, but honestly, most of the work is indoors or a lot of the work is indoors. And even if you are outside, you are not necessarily watching animals all day. You are probably working on wildlife indirectly, doing vegetation surveys, things like that. So my book, a big component of my book is really about understanding the end result of where you want to be in your career. I spend a couple of chapters going over the different job types of wildlife biology and also careers tangential to wildlife biology. So those that are not necessarily research-based but are related to wildlife and nature. I also go over all the different workplaces because, like I said, the different types of education and training you're going to need will vary according to those workplaces. My biggest takeaway, though, is to really understand the job that you want to get. And through this book, I teach you how to understand those requirements And to get you started, I've created this job tracker tool. It's really a spreadsheet, but this spreadsheet gets you to understand the jobs that you are interested in and their requirements. It really forces you to slow down and pay attention to these things because otherwise you're going to end up going through school, getting getting maybe a degree you don't need. For me, I 
apply to jobs sometimes at the master's level. And if I have a PhD, honestly, this could make me less competitive because people might think, oh, she is just applying for this job, a temporary position to get paid while she's really looking for the real job that she wants. So there's a lot of things that you need to think of that I bring up in this book. And the job tracker tool will get you started about how to figure out some of the jobs that you're interested in and how to start analyzing them. I've been so busy with my book because I sent it out to beta readers and I got some great feedback. A piece of feedback that I got from one beta reader is that I need more stories. I kind of made this book as like a how-to book, a guidebook, essentially. I went into my background, but she said I didn't go deep enough into my background about particularly stories that happened during those events. So that's what I've been working on. I've been working like crazy, writing and adding a bunch of stories that I have from my experiences working in Kenya, Gabon, working in Utah for Disney World, and some of the lessons that I've learned from those different experiences and how they can help you. So in the first few chapters, I go over extensively my background and how the expectations of my career matched up to the reality, what I really went through. The following chapter after that is what I think is honestly really cool because like I said, I don't think anyone's done this before, but I actually go through all of the jobs that I applied for after my PhD and explain which ones I got interviewed for And why I didn't quite make the cut to get that job. So I go over every single job that I applied for and got an interview for. And then I also include all of the jobs that I applied for and I didn't get an interview for. So you can get a sense of, given my background, how competitive I was for these various types of jobs. As I mentioned before, I go over all of the different types of careers related to wildlife biology, the major ones, and I go over the different types of workplaces. If you want an excellent resource in the meantime, actually this book is a little bit different than my book because this book goes more into depth about those specific types of workplaces. You can get the book Becoming a Wildlife Professional. I have a link to it in that blog post, The Seven Beginner's Tips, and I'll also link it into the show notes for this podcast. You can also download the job tracker from that blog post as well. And this will also put you on my email list. I send out an email every Sunday, Stephanie Science Sunday. It's super fun. I send you fun animal pictures, different posts that I like throughout the week, what's new on my blog, what's new on my YouTube and insight into productivity tips or self-help tips. It's a bunch of different things. But this this email list will also keep you alert of when my book is coming out, which will be this fall, definitely, which is why I'm crazy writing to make sure that it gets done. Actually, it should be on pre-sale next month or the very latest August. 
Okay, back to the book, Becoming a Wildlife Professional. I have a link to it on my blog post. It's it's a great book in that it goes in depth to the different types of careers and workplaces, but I personally think that some of the advice that they give is a little out of date in that they don't emphasize about how competitive it is. Like they have one chapter that talks about how to become successful in this career and it talks about, you know, getting good grades and taking this seriously always being professional, but it honestly takes more than that. You are going to need to have networking skills. You are going to have to know what you want to do and have to get the skills for what you want to do. So that is a great resource in the meantime. Some of the other things that I go over in my book are the types of degrees that you can get and which one is best for you, some of the questions that you might want to ask yourself if you're thinking about getting a PhD compared to a master's. I go over different experiences and why they are really important for securing a job in wildlife biology and some other more creative ways that you can get experience in this field. I write the book really for anyone who is interested in going into this field. That includes college students, high school students, non-traditional students. You can enter this career really at any age. Younger students and parents. I get parents who email me saying their four-year-old wants to become a wildlife biologist. So I have resources in there for all different age levels and how you can really make yourself competitive for this career. And then I have also decided to rearrange my book and take out the chapters that I had on graduate school because I realize not everyone is going to go to graduate school. And I'm going to turn those into an online course. I actually think that they lend themselves better to an online course because I can explain things easier through a microphone than I can writing them. And I also wanted to go more into depth about some of the ways that you can really level up your graduate school experience. And then finally, the last chapter is all about maybe this career isn't right for you, but you still care about wildlife. You still care about conservation. What can you do to still make your vocation include these aspects and and have this meaningful impact on wildlife and conservation? Is there other things that you can do to get that same experience or maybe, honestly, that are even a better experience for you? So those are the major things that I'll go over in my book, including a a detailed explanation of what research is, because I think, like I said before, so many people's expectations does not match up reality. And it's basically revealing everything that I've done in my career and how you can use it to help you. I am also designing a workbook to go along with the book that will take you through your yourself and your own journey that you have had thus far and how you can identify the things most important to you and apply them to the career you want and to really use that information to figure out what is the career that you want. Because like me, I think so many people were confused because like me, I think so many people are confused. They don't know what direction to really take. 
And I think the biggest problem is that they don't really understand what research is or what it's like to work in these different workplaces. That I know is what was true for me. I had my answers so vague because I didn't have a solid understanding of what the different options were like. So I demystify that all for you in this book. And I hope you'll sign up for the waiting list. You can do so on my blog, fancyscientist.com. Okay, so now shifting gears to what I talked about last week, which is non-mineral sunscreen and its impact on coral. To summarize, there have been a couple of laboratory studies that have shown that Ingredients in sunscreen, particularly oxybenzone, can cause coral reefs to bleach. I also mentioned, though, that there are a lot of potential health impacts on humans. There there were studies suggesting that that oxybenzone and other ingredients can cause harm to humans, particularly as an endocrine disruptor, but in potentially other ways as well. Okay, so I got this tweet from a scientist saying that it is a lie that sunscreen does not cause corals to bleach. It does not kill corals. Marine scientists, or at least some marine scientists, don't think that there's enough evidence to suggest that because these studies that show the damage of sunscreen to coral were done in an aquarium. So therefore, we can't say on such a global level that sunscreen is killing coral reefs. I think an important part of this to really mention is whether or not that's true, sunscreen is not the major driver of killing coral reefs. In other words, if we all wear mineral-based sunscreen, then coral reefs are safe. No, the number one factor the number one threat to coral reefs as a whole is climate change. That is the biggest thing that will affect that will affect coral reefs because they are so sensitive to temperature changes that even a couple of degrees can kill certain species. Also, so one thing the scientist was particularly co- concerned about is that all of this talk about coral reefs gives the misconception that we are saving coral reefs by switching over to mineral-based sunscreen. I want to make it clear that that's not the argument that I was making last week. Scientists also question a few other things. For example, in Hawaii, if we've been using these sunscreens for years and years, why haven't we seen more coral reefs dying off? The behavior of sunscreen in water is unknown. We don't know what happens to it, how much of it goes off into the water. There needs to be more research on this. Basically, the scientists think that there needs to be more research done on it in the wild. And also that we should not forget the biggest impacts to coral reefs, which are climate change, overfishing, and pollution. Those are the biggest impacts. And their argument is that sunscreen is just so minor in relation to those major threats that it's not something that we really need to be concerned about when it comes to coral reefs. Although I did read one study about the combined effects of sunscreen and climate change on coral reefs that countered that. So I'll put a link to that into the show notes. But they were mostly concerned about things like people wearing shirts, save the reefs, ban sunscreens. And 
in reality, if you're a tourist visiting Hawaii, the plane trip that you took to Hawaii is theoretically way worse for the coral reefs than the sunscreen that you're using when you're in Hawaii. To add on to this, another concern is that if politicians and government focus on banning sunscreen, it looks like they are doing something to help the environment and they can ignore these more obvious threats or these more impactful threats like climate change and pollution. So this is one way that they can essentially get environmental groups off their backs by saying, hey, look, we're doing this ban of oxybenzone uh, in sunscreen and we are doing some great work, therefore protecting our environment. Now, that being said, all that's being said, and I agree with that completely, I'll, I'll link to an article that basically that, that really summarizes those in detail. I still do not use sunscreen with oxybenzone in it and these other ingredients. I still prefer to use mineral-based sunscreen because there are a lot of studies out there showing the potential effects of these ingredients on humans, and especially when it comes to endocrine disruption. I have a family history of breast cancer, and there's a recent study that came out this year about the impact of breast cells. So I like to use the precautionary principle, which is if there's research to suggest harm, I am going to wait and not use that until there is enough research to suggest that that is a correlation and not causation. So there is enough research to show that it doesn't cause these problems. And so I'm going to wait because we have options. We have mineral sunscreen. And also, I feel like if there are laboratories studies showing that sunscreen can harm coral, I personally don't feel comfortable with adding to that damage. It's it's not in if or situation. It's not like either I wear non-mineral sunscreen and I take a trip to Hawaii. <laughs> it's not it's not like that. It's about our overall lifestyle and Given the hormonal impacts, given the potential damage to coral reefs, I think it is so worth it to switch to mineral sunscreen. So I still stand behind what I said in the last podcast. But like I said, everything is just way more complicated than it seems. Yes, it's about the science, but politics and economics have a large influence on things that happen with conservation. I still encourage you to buy mineral-based sunscreen. And if you want to get some mineral-based sunscreen, now is actually a really great time to get it. I told you last week that my favorite band is Beauty Counter. And you can also get that on my website. I'll put it in the show notes. They are having a 15% off sale. So you can definitely get some mineral sunscreen from them. And theirs is the best because it blends in with the skin so well. A lot of mineral-based sunscreens are thick and pasty and white. And it can be really obvious you're wearing sunscreen, especially if you have a darker skin color. But this kind really blends in really well. I love it. I use it when I have to in the summer when I'm out by the beach or doing something for a long period of time in the sun. 
Thank you guys so much for listening. I have been so busy with my book that I have not been doing work on my YouTube and blog as much, but I hope to turn that around this week. I'm going to try to get out a video on all of the animals I saw on the Kinapatangan River when I went there last year to Borneo and get out some more useful tips for you guys. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this podcast, please share it and please review my podcast and rate it. This helps other people find it. Thanks guys so much for listening. Have an amazing day. Be nice to each other. Be nice to animals. Bye.